Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes, I believe The Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly, I miss him every single minute. The LOLs, the moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. It is because of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement that I am standing here today because of everything he represents, strength, service, sacrifice, and above all, possibility that doors opened for me and millions of others, allowing me to fully become the person that I am. In honor of Dr. King, we are taking a special look back at race on The Oprah Winfrey Show over the past 25 years. In 1987, we'd only been on the air for about six months when we took our show to Forsyth County, Georgia, where not a single black person had lived for 75 years. And I wanted to find out why. We bring you today to Forsyth County, Georgia, just 30 miles north of Atlanta, which in the past few weeks has gained the reputation of being a hotbed of racism. There's no niggers here. Why should they even come, you know? They asked for it. They got it. So why'd they come back, you know? people who can't come from who were shouting nigger go home they came from, right they came from where yes ma'am they came from my name's frank shirley i'm the head of the committee to keep forsyth and dawson county white they let him speak please let him speak he has the right to speak okay the news media is covered up there were thousands of white people that came out to join our white people's protest this is the largest white people's protest against communism and race mixing in the last 30 years the news media has deliberately covered up the nature of the Brotherhood marchers, many of whom are commun outright communists and homosexuals, and our organization was the only one that dared take a stand against them. They marched, they brought in so thousands. you're not just anti-black, you're also anti-gay, too. I'm opposed to communism, race mixing, and low morals, and homosexuals are of low morals, in my opinion. You don't believe that people of other races have the right to live here? They have the right to live wherever they want to, but we have the right to choose if we want a white community also. That's why we moved here. You believe, that's what you believe, excuse me. Why is it that there are people in this county, obviously, who are afraid of black people? What is it you are afraid black people are going to do? I mean, that's what I'd like to know. I'm, I'm afraid of uh, them coming to Forsyth County. I lived in Atlanta, I was born in Atlanta. And uh, in 1963, the first blacks were bused to West Fulton High School. And I go down there now and I see my neighborhood. 
and my community, which was a nice community, a nice neighborhood, and now it's nothing but a rat-infested slum area because they don't care. They don't care. Thank you. No, what, shut up, what, shut up. You know, you know. Uh, do you mean they, us, the entire black race, the entire you black have race? blacks and you have niggers. What's the difference between I've a black talked, person and a nigger to you? I've talked to black people. Black people, they don't want to come up here. They, want to, they, they don't want to cause any trouble. That's a black person. A nigger wants to come up here and cause trouble all the time. That's the difference. Someday, I hope, like Martin Luther King said, we can walk hand in hand and we can take race out of it. And I can treat you as a female, not as a black woman. And when we can do that, and we are, you we are do able that to if do you that. Have gentlemen like Martin him Luther who, King was a communist agent. He was a member of 62 <laughs> communist fronts. Okay. You say well, what? I yes. have something to say. I'm very upset about what's going on. I don't think that Forsyth County has been portrayed right. Uh, it's not only by what's outside right now. But I just really hate to think that it's going to take someone either black or white getting hurt or losing their lives before people can sit down and talk this out. It is a time for change. There's nothing we can do about it. Everybody, ha there's one God. And I just hate to think that someone is going to get hurt before the people get some sense about them and talk about this and get it like it's supposed to be. It, How is it supposed to be? Black and white together in Forsyth County. There's no other way. There was much discussion around Harpo Studios about whether we should or should not go. A lot of my colleagues here felt that I should not go. But I believed then and I still do that the only way to open hearts and minds is to get people to talk about it and to start the conversation. And that's exactly what we did. About a year after this show was taped in Forsyth County, I did a show with skinheads. And during that show, one of the skinheads referred to me as a monkey, I think. And I watched them in the audience giving signals to one another and I had a big, revelatory aha moment during that show. I realized that sometimes the conversation does not help. Sometimes the conversation gives voice to that which should not be heard. And it was a seminal moment for me because I decided in that moment in the show with the skinheads, I am no longer going to ever consciously use this platform for that which I think is from the dark side or evil. Our producers went back to Forsyth. It is one of the richest counties in the United States. And today, 2011, 7,329 African-American citizens live there. The residents we spoke to, both black and white, say it is a great place to live and raise a family. That is progress. We're taking a 25-year look back at shows we've done on race on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Back in 1965, Dr. King said, the time is always right to do what is right. I love that quote. So it was a groundbreaking moment in television when seven of the original Little Rock Nine came face to face here in our studios with the white high school students who once terrorized them. Here is where their story began. 1957, Arkansas. The nation was riveted by the Little Rock Nine, nine black teenagers who were set to integrate Little Rock Central High School. But it seemed the entire state of Arkansas meant to stop them. The governor called out the National Guard, 
not to protect the students, but to block their entrance to school. And threatening white students jeered them at every turn. Finally, the black students were allowed to enter the school through a side door, and the white mob erupted in a riot. President Eisenhower sent over 1,000 members of the 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock to escort the students to school. But once inside the schoolhouse doors, the Little Rock Nine found that their struggles for respect and equality had only just begun. What was that first day like? When we finally got in, we had armed escorts. We had people with guns standing outside the classroom. That's right. at, at one point, it was totally silent. And then all these children standing and bending out of the windows screaming, boo, boo. It was an atmosphere of, uh, of hostility, of war. So you put, on your, you put on your armor, turn your face into your game face, and uh, got ready to, to go to war. There were teachers that were helpful. There were others who were indifferent. And then there were some who were at beyond war. indifferent. Yes. Yeah, at war. they were part of the war. That's right. Yeah. You mm -hmm. have no doubt that these are people intent on doing great harm and bodily injury. You know, a lot of people from out of town. My mother and I almost got hanged that day. People with ropes circled underneath their arm and over their shoulder, as they put it, ready to do business, ready to hang a nigger. Joining me now are three of the white students who admit in one form or another to being part of that ugliness in Little Rock. This is Ann Bolson. She was chanting the words 2468, we don't want to integrate. And Ann says she is now ashamed of that schoolyard chant. Jean Porter regrets being a silent witness to the crimes by fellow white students, including seeing them put thumbtacks on Melba's chair and also witnessing boys in gym urinating on the lockers of Ernest Green. And David Sontag came here today, he says, to a apologize to Minnie Jean for an altercation in the cafeteria. So uh, you came here to what? Do you... I am genuinely sorry for any negative things that I did at that time. I was really acting as a child that was not prepared. But it was not, uh, it was not done with, out of hate. What well, was it done it was out just of? done <laughs> out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. Of not understanding her plight. Mm -hmm. And uh, or the plight of all of them, we didn't really know. We weren't walking in their shoes. We didn't put our stuff in their shoes. And I know that I didn't treat them the way I would have wanted to be treated. Mm -hmm. Does his apology mean anything to you? I would like to come forward and a lot. apologize to <laughs> Yeah, it means a lot to us. I want to take this dog yeah. out here. I wish you all the good. Yeah. Thank you. And you better listen than you. <laughs> and you got pulled out of school after one month. Your parents did, right? Because Yes. I was raised in a racist family. I can't tell you things that was said in my home, and I'm I'm sorry about that. What were they saying to you at home? You're not going to school with those niggers. And it it was not it was awful. And the main reason I want to be here today is to tell you how regretful I am for causing what should have been the best year of your life the most miserable. I went alone because I was afraid. I, you can't imagine for 38 years how badly I have felt. That does not do anything for what happened. That does not. I, I'm just sorry. You were taught racism at home. 
Did you break that chain at I home with your children? I broke that chain with my and children. That's very, very key that to me. Is what, that's what I think I've done wrong. Gene, are you sorry? Did you? Did oh, you? Yes, I am sorry. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Mm -hmm. I felt powerless. Uh, also, peer pressure has a lot to do when you're in, at that age. Well, and I think Gene represented yeah. probably the bulk of students that did nothing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was silence. It's the great silence. It's the silence. It's the That's people right. who don't speak up. And if there's any lesson to be learned. Now, 30, almost 40 years now, hopefully, somebody watches this show and will be moved enough to stand up for something that's right. I love that moment in the show because it's a reminder to all of us of what Dr. King said. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. One of the things that was so moving to me about the Little Rock Nine is their ability to forgive and I think that they were able to do that because they understood that they really weren't fighting people, just the physical bodies, but they were fighting the entire blight and stain of ignorance on this country. And so as the light was shed into people's hearts and people began to see things differently, actually see each other differently, I think it was easier to forgive when you understood that so much of that just came out of pure ignorance, as does all hatred. That was a blessed day for me to be in the studio with the Little Rock Nine because there's no question that they paved the way for people like myself and their shoulders, I'm standing on them. Now let's take a look back at a show that brought the descendant of a notorious slave owner face to face with the relatives of slaves they owned. Katie's grandmother was a slave who was owned by the ancestors of Edward Ball. The Ball family owned more than 4,000 slaves and a dozen plantations in South Carolina. Recently, Edward, Katie, and Charlotte went back to the ruins of a Ball plantation house where their ancestors lived as master and as slave. This place is coming tea plantation. Charlotte and Katie's ancestors were in slavery on this place uh, in the beginning of the 1800s. They were here. Their blood, sweat, and tears were at this plantation. My grandmother told me how she had to escape getting a whipping. When she took me down to the river and showed me how she tied her dress around her waist and leaped overboard to keep from getting a whipping. And as she was diving into the water, she told my mother and that they were shooting at her and the bullets were flying over her head and they left thinking that she was dead. May your soul rest in, in peace. peace. What did you want to say today, Edward? I want to say that I'm sorry for the suffering that my family caused your family so many years ago and for such a long time. And in saying that, I know that we haven't reached the end of the journey. We haven't even come to the middle, but we might have just put our feet up on the path and taken the first small steps toward understanding. I ask, I ask your forgiveness. Mm. 
So, Charlotte, what does it mean to you to have um, this apology? I, I live with racism every day. To hear that doesn't like, wash it away. But it says that someone recognizes what we go through when we walk out our doors. And it's overwhelming. Oh. Whew, that was a moment. I think we could all see the healing power of that apology. Another powerful moment on the show involved an eye-opening experiment so that some of our audience members could experience the feeling of being judged by color for the first time in their lives. This is unbelievable. Today's audience was separated into two groups. Not on the color of their skin were they separated when they arrived. They were separated based on the color of their eyes. But they have no idea that they were separated. What we did was treat each group differently, discriminating against the people who have blue eyes, catering to those people with brown eyes. Come on, come on, come on, come on. We'll cover your eyes. Blue, over there, put it on. No, 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 over there. Blue, over there. The blue-eyed people were pulled out of line, told to put on a green collar and wait outside. When the brown-eyed people arrived, they were told to step to the front of the line. Our staff was instructed to be extra polite to brown-eyed people and to discriminate against blue-eyed people like this yeah, one. I was saying that, but actually my license got stolen. And when I went to replace well, I'm it, I'm sorry, it that's came. not our problem. You well, always have to have eyes anywhere you go. Audience members with brown eyes were allowed to enjoy coffee and donuts. Those with blue eyes were left standing in a crowded room without refreshments for over two hours. The blue eyed group became upset when they saw the brown eyed people were being seated first. You look at those people with you. What are they doing in there? Yes. Diversity expert Jane Elliott helped set up the experiment. She played along telling our segregated audience that brown-eyed people were smarter than blue-eyed people. I've been a teacher for 25 years in the public, private, and parochial schools in this country, and I have seen what brown-eyed people have done as compared to what blue-eyed people do. And it's perfectly obvious. And if I didn't believe it before this morning, you should have been here this morning when we brought these people in here. Feeling discriminated against, the blue-eyed audience members were visibly upset. She was rude to us, rude. all of us. Yelled at us, called us names, pushed us aside. She was rude. This lady came out in the line with all of us people that had light-colored eyes and said, you put this green collar on now and keep it on, and if you don't, hit the road. I want to say, why doesn't Jane have a green collar on? She wants She's to got say blue eyes. Because I've learned to act brown-eyed. I have a brown-eyed husband and three brown-eyed children. Why did you? And the message in this room is, act brown-eyed and you, too, can take off your collar. Act intelligently oh, and you, too, won't lose your collar. That's, None of you have, have acted intelligently yet. It wasn't long before the brown-eyed people bought into the idea that they were superior. You people. in school who was blue-eyed. She was so stupid. She was always copying off of my papers. These people were so rude and so noisy today, we couldn't hear any ourselves even talk. It was ridiculous. Eventually, the audience figured out the show was really about race. Now, he was so angry, he took off his collar way on early. Yeah, I, we need to talk about that, taking off the collar. These people can take off their collars, and then nobody knows what color their eyes are from a distance. How many of you people of color can take off the collar that we have put on you? How many of you can take off your color? But if a black male refused to follow your orders, or your husband's orders, or your father's orders, on the street, 
you would not see that as being highly principled. You would see him as being an uppity nigger. Well, we can see where this is going. She's saying that everybody has racism in them. It's not really about the eye. She's trying to teach about racism. But she can't get away from the fact that God created the races and you are going to be different. You can't help it God to be like that. God created one race, the human race, and human beings created racism. Oh, I love that. I love that. Human beings created racism. God created one race, the human race. I believe the lessons from that show are still so valuable today and because it really illustrates how susceptible we all are to prejudice and how quickly people can be poisoned by misinformation and ignorance. Another powerful moment on the show involved a white man who wanted to experience what it would be like to live as a different race. 10 months ago, Josh Solomon was black. What he did was really remarkable. Josh took some potentially life-threatening pills to change his skin color from white to black. And what he experienced as a black man was chilling. So chilling, in fact, that after just one week of being black, he abruptly called off the experiment and went home to let the medicine wear off. And we asked him to retrace his steps to take a look for us. For all intents and purposes, I think I looked like the typical black teenager with reddish brown skin and a bald head. In Gainesville, I got a hotel room and started to explore the city. Often when I ran into people in the street, they reacted to me as if they were scared or suspicious. I went in this pool hall to get a drink. They followed me around like I was a thief. One afternoon, I was walking back to my hotel down this road. A police officer pulled me over at that intersection, started to hassle me about who I was and why I was there. Things like this never happened to me when I was white. One time I went into a fancy restaurant to eat, and although I saw several vacant tables, the major d' told me that there was nothing available. And in the short time I spent as a black, I can only conclude that perhaps we haven't come as far as we thought. So how did that make you feel? Because I think that is the one thing that over the years I've done at least 100 shows on racism, and it's so hard to convey what that, having that happen to you being treated like a suspect every day sure. of your life, what that does to your personal psyche. Right, well, I, you know, that's the hardest part. Whites receive this prima facie respect. I walk into a room, regardless of how much money I have in my pocket, there's a certain level of respect that I get from folks. And the first thing that I realized when I was black was, it's gone, you don't get any of that. You know, white people get this respect and black people are constantly trying to prove that they deserve it or are worthy of it. When he said white people get this respect and black people are constantly trying to prove that they deserve it or are worthy of it, I thought that was so profound. It was really the first time we'd heard anything like that on our show, particularly coming from a young white man. In the summer of 1992, long simmering racial tensions in Los Angeles came to a head. That is when we saw the brutal beating of Rodney King by white police officers captured on tape. Now, when the officers were acquitted, riots erupted across the city. Even though many people warned against it, I wanted to go there. Right after the Rodney King verdict, we were in Los Angeles for a town hall discussion that got heated. Because you got to take what you want. You're not your oppressors. Hold up, hold up. We have to stop blaming each other. Yeah. 
One of the reasons I wanted to come to LA is because when you're sitting in your comfortable homes and you hear the death toll rise to so many people, those are just numbers. And what I wanted to do was to place some names and some lives and some faces and some families so that we in this country recognize what we have done. And you were shot. I was shot about six hours after the verdict came in. Uh, I was, ironically, I was shot by a black guy, you know, but I mean, I have um, a bullet right now. It's, uh, it's in my chest embedded under my heart. I have in my inner uh, left bicep. When were you, you shot? Wednesday, um, about six hours after the verdict. Mm -hmm. And you're here? I'm standing up, I'm right here. You're here. <laughs> Weren't you uh, shot while you were trying to rescue somebody? Isn't that what yeah, I Yeah, I was trying to stop uh, a looting and a robbery from, from a Korean merchant. And the guy just turned around, he was six to 10 feet away, and he just shot me. My brother was the, the uh, first victim in Long Beach. He was on his way to help a, a friend of his, happened to be a black gal, who had called him up and said, I want to get my family out of here because I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. And my van's broken and I can't get it to start. My brother's a mechanic, so he and my nephew, my sister's son, hopped on a motorcycle, went up there 50 yards from his house, from her place. They were mobbed, knocked off the motorcycle. My brother was shot in the head. My nephew was shot three times, and he'd be dead, except the gun they put in his face wouldn't go off. Hmm. I'm 47 years old. I don't understand. I don't understand. I've been raised all my life that if this man here cuts himself shaving, and I cut myself shaving, the blood in the cup's the same, the same thing. <laughs> if they lay him, and me on a slab somewhere and peel our skin off, unless you're an expert. You don't know who we are. Mm -hmm. And that we all have a soul that comes from one God. And so I'm here for answers. Okay, well this is interesting because you are obviously a white man. Yeah, and I'm, an, I'm, I'm, I'm a middle class white man. Okay, but I wanted to ask, when the Rodney King verdict came down, I was so moved by hearing a young black woman who said, this said to me, my life doesn't mean anything. Could you, as a white male, see how that verdict made so many black people feel? Could you see that? Do you see that? I'm not sure that, black, that verdict means that any of us have any value. Not just black people, mm. anybody. In 1963, Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I think everyone who was a part of that show could identify with that. Three years later, more racial tension. We were watching live in our studio when the verdict for the O.J. Simpson trial came down. We, along with the rest of the country, saw this verdict as you saw it, and the jury has spoken. Obviously, you're very happy. I'm very happy for his family, for his children. I'm very happy. I'm also very happy. I think justice was served. Mm -hmm. Not everyone here is happy, however. Not everyone here is happy. I, I noticed that you are not. No, I'm not happy. I just feel like she's rolling over in her grave, and, and he got, she said if he ever did it, he would get away with it. That's what she said, and he, he knows what he did! I really believe that he is guilty. However, I think that California is relieved that he was shown not guilty because the blacks would have burned the city down. I'm very sure of that. 
That was a moment in our cultural history where the dividing line in race had never been more clear. I think many people were happy for O.J.'s acquittal because they thought justice was not served in the Rodney King trial and many trials before. I also think that Dr. King's quote also applies here. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. In September 2009, rapper, artist, mogul Jay-Z and I went head to head on a big controversy. You know, I've been um, known for not being a big fan of rap music because of misogynist lyrics and because of the use of the N-word. You obviously feel differently and... A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. And tell, tell everybody why. Um, what we had discussed is, is, is more of uh, words. People give words power. Yeah. You know, and for our generation, what we did was we took the word and we took the power out of that word. Mm -hmm. You know, we turned a word that was very ugly and hurtful into a term of endearment. So, I mean, even when someone says it, there's still intention behind what you say. Mm -hmm. But um, pretty much took the power out of the word. Because if we just start removing words from the dictionary, just make up another word the next day. So we don't address the problem. The problem is racism, right? That's really the problem. So we, we disagree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason I feel that way, because my generation and generations before me, obviously, coming up through the civil rights movement, and I am where I am because there was a, there was a generation before me that fought for civil rights, and that word carries such um, a sense of hatred and degradation. And I always think about when I hear the word, even when I'm at the concert and people are, you know, screaming it at your concert, I, I think about black men who were lynched and that's the last word they heard. And so that, that comes from my generation. Right. Okay. So, okay, we agree to disagree. Which, no, which is a strong, strong point, understandable. Okay. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> we disagree. So here's the deal. I read Jay-Z's new book, Decoded, which put the hip-hop rap conversation in a different context and took it to a new level for me. In the book where he talks about his life, he breaks down rap in a way that I thought brings an entirely new perspective to the culture. On page 162, I had an aha moment when he writes, rappers are young black men telling stories that the police, among others, don't want to hear. Reading that, I realized I was among the others. So I appreciated this book so much that I made it one of my favorite things. And I'm proud to say I get it now. So thank you, Jay-Z, for opening up my mind. That's what this day is all about. After 25 years of tackling race on The Oprah Show, here's an unexpected update from a former racist who appeared on our show in 1989. You say here, how can anyone scorn a cute little four-year-old boy because of the color of his skin? But you did for a while? When he was born, I started changing from that point on. He's part of me, and I, uh, I'm ashamed of the way I felt before. It was 1989 when Jim Rainey wrote how the love of his biracial grandson helped change his racist ways. But even today, he feels ashamed of his dark past. I felt I was superior, that white people were superior to blacks. I felt blacks were okay as long as they stayed in their own place. And that place was where I wanted them to be. There were instances where myself and friends 
tune the black person up, you know, maybe a threat or a slap or something like that. Uh, it's not something I'm proud of talking about, you know. Uh, I guess, I guess I, you could say I had a bully mentality. Jim was furious when he learned his daughter was pregnant with a biracial child. I was mad, violently mad. Gosh, I wanted to, I wanted to do a lot of things, and they were all against the law. And I, 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 I wouldn't lie to you and say I didn't think about getting a gun and shooting a few people. Initially, Jim wanted nothing to do with his grandson, Seth, but something changed. He didn't know I was a racist. He didn't know how evil my mind was. He just knew I was smoking. I was his granddaddy, and he loved me. I had to think about what I was doing. The next thing you know, I, I loved him. The four-year-old boy we first met on the show is 26 and married with three children of his own. I've always looked at my granddad as just a, a role model in my life. And, you know, I love him very much and proud to have him as a, as a, as a granddad. Jim's transformation came full circle when he and his wife adopted two black children into their family. These are my boys, my sons. It's amazing that you can get this old and just now realize what your calling in life is. That's being a parent and a father to Robert and Walter. I hope that, that Brent and I both can last long enough to see them raised and have, have opportunities. Opportunities that thugs like me would have denied them 40 years ago. If a guy like myself can change, I, I, there's hope for everyone. In 1967, Dr. King said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Thank you, James, for showing the world what love can do. I hope that you will find some time in this day to reflect on Dr. King's vision and how you can fulfill your greatness through service. Have a great day. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. And I thank you for listening.